Hey, this is Stephen, and I want to welcome you or welcome you back to the Grove Church Podcast. For more information or to find more resources like this one, be sure to visit us at grove.org. Thanks for listening, and I hope the following message is encouraging and meaningful to your life. Good morning and welcome to The Grove. We are so glad that you are tuning in with us this morning. Wherever you find yourself this morning, whether you are snuggled in on the couch with your family or maybe you are upstairs in a room away from your family trying to get a little peace and quiet or maybe you have taken us on the road this morning and you are out for a walk or a jog. Wherever you are tuning in this morning, we are so glad that you are with us today. We love that through the power of technology, we can all be together here this morning, even if we can't do so in person. Now, my name is Stephen, and I am one of the pastors here, and we love that you are tuning in with us this morning. If this is your first time, we just want to take a moment and just say how glad we are that you are with us. We hope that you find the next little bit of time that we're together meaningful and enriching to your life. Now, we are in week two of a brand new sermon series on the book of Exodus. Exodus is the second of two books out of 66 books in what we call the Bible. And to catch everybody up to speed or to remind you what we talked about last week, uh, let me kind of recap what we covered. Now, last week we talked about how Exodus is part of a much larger story that God is telling in the world. It's the story of God's relationship with his people, and it's one that is still being told today. And so Exodus isn't just the story of the people of Israel escaping Egypt, but Exodus is our story about how we can move into new places and enter into a new journey into a deeper relationship with God. And so this morning, we're going to pick up and we're actually going to start in the very first chapter and in the first few verses of the book of Exodus. Last week was all recap. We talked about how we got to the place of Exodus. And so this morning, we're actually going to start in Exodus. So hopefully you have your Bibles in hand. If not, send one of your kids to run and grab it real fast because we'll be reading out of the Bible together this morning. Now, before we jump in, we've got to kind of address the elephant that's going to be in the room throughout the rest of this sermon series. Oftentimes when you read scripture, and particularly when you read narratives or stories of God at work in the lives of his people, there are themes or there are kind of things that emerge that maybe cause you to ask some questions. And throughout the book of Exodus, there's going to be a question that bubbles up again and again and again. And it is one that we have to address this morning so that we can put it to bed for the rest of the series. Now, this question is not just a question that we come up with when we read Exodus, but it's a question that maybe we're asking every day right now as we find ourselves kind of in this new normal, you know, amidst all of this COVID-19 pandemic. And the question is this, why does God allow bad things to happen? What we'll see again and again in the story of Exodus is that God is at work. It is clear to see God's activity in the lives of his people. And in the pages of scripture, we see God at work. But yet we also see these terrible and horrific things happening in the world. And and so it causes us to try to reconcile the presence of both of these things. And that causes us to ask some questions, just like we do in our lives today. 
Many of us, if you're tuning in, it's likely the case that you have some level of belief in God, that God is at work, that God is present in this world. And yet, when you look at the world around you, when you read you know, the newspapers and you watch the headlines on the news reports, you start to ask questions like, how can all of these bad things exist? Economic downturn, global pandemic, rising body counts. How do we reconcile the presence of God and the presence of bad together? How can they both coexist? And when we come up against this question, when we begin to wrestle with this topic, typically uh, we quickly jump to one of two opinions or one of two conclusions. And I think that there's problems with both of these. And so I wanna unpack these this morning before we get to the story of Exodus. Now, for many of us, the first kind of conclusion that we come to is an attempt to kind of reconcile the presence of the bad stuff in the world. We try to put it away, sweep it under the rug, and kind of uh, ignore all of the suffering that exists in the world. And so oftentimes when we're trying to hold on to the presence of God and to make sense of all of the bad that we see in the world, you'll hear things like this, don't worry, God has a plan, or don't worry, everything works for good. Or don't worry, God's got it all under control. Or maybe even in the presence of death, you hear things like this, like, oh, God just needed another angel in heaven. Now, I understand the intent and the motivation behind these comments. I understand why people say these things. It's an attempt to try to explain and to reconcile these difficult things that we experience in life. You know, the presence of pain and suffering in our lives is hard to navigate. And so we try to do so in a way that accommodates our belief in God. But sometimes it's a little too simplistic. And sometimes even though we mean well, and even though we offer these you know, suggestions or these sayings and platitudes with the greatest level of care and concern for the people that we're expressing them to, they can often feel incredibly unhelpful, sometimes hurtful, and most of the time, you know, unpractical. And so I don't think that that's the best way for us to reconcile the presence of God and the presence of all of the bad that we see in the world. It's just to explain all the bad away that God's got it under control and we shouldn't have to worry about it because it doesn't acknowledge the reality of the difficult things that we experience. It minimizes and ignores most of the time the reality of how difficult those things are to deal with. So that's one approach. And that's an approach that I, doesn't, I don't think works well. Another approach, instead of trying to you know, explain away the presence of evil or bad or suffering, uh, the other approach is to explain away God. And so this approach assumes that if the bad things that we observe in the world, which are clear and obvious, if those are present, then it must mean that God can't be present. And this is a conclusion that maybe some of you are wrestling with today because you have a difficulty understanding how, how a God would allow such things to happen in the world. It's the basis of the question that we ask, why does God allow bad things to happen? Because in it applies an assumption that God shouldn't allow these bad things to happen. And that's a normal assumption. But there's a couple of problems with this line of reasoning this assumption that both bad things and God can't coexist. And the first one is this. Uh, I would ask you, where do you get your categories for good and for bad? 
when we look at the world and we identify something, even on a universal scale, as that's clearly wrong, that's unjust, that's unfair, that's awful. Maybe we even label it as evil. So typically when we see, you know, the death of, you know, a child or the genocide of a group of people or, you know, really difficult things like rape or things like that, we begin to clearly classify them all using the same categories. That's bad. That's wrong. That's evil. That's unjust. My question for you would be, if we all universally agree on the categories that these things fall under, where do we get those categories? Why is it that when we see the world and the pain and suffering that exists in it, we think to ourselves or maybe we feel inside that that's not how it's supposed to be? We look at the line of people waiting to get food or the struggles of people who live in poverty and we say, that's not right. That's not how it's supposed to be. That supposed to be implies that there is a way that this world is supposed to operate. It implies that there is a way that this world was created to be that is not currently meeting that level of expectation. And so we categorize it as bad or as wrong. Where do we get that from? I think that this is evidence that clearly points to the existence of God. I believe that God created a good world. And yet in the presence of evil in this world, we recognize that it causes this world to not be as it was created to be. I think that's the first problem when we try to explain away the existence of God. We do so using categories that I think were given to us by God. We have to identify that these categories of how the world's supposed to be are based on a way that it was designed to be, in a way that it was designed to be, in my opinion, by God. Now, the second mistake that we make in some of this line of reasoning is we attribute characteristics to God that we then hold God accountable to. And we make some assumptions about how God's supposed to act and operate in the world. We assume that God is all-powerful, that God is all-knowing, that God is all-present, that God is all-good. And so then when we apply these characteristics to God, then we evaluate God based on whether or not God actually lives up to by our observations, these characteristics and the expression that we assume these characteristics should have in the world. Basically what we're doing is we're creating God in our own image, applying these omnipotent, omnipresent, all-powerful characteristics to what and the way that we would operate and act in the world. And then we say, when God doesn't act the way that we think God should act, it must mean that there's not a God. Well, what if the way that God is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-loving and all-gracious and all-kind doesn't meet our definition of the expression of those characteristics. You know, we clearly see this with Jesus on the cross. The greatest act of love looked like complete weakness in the moment. But how is a God that's all-powerful, how would a God that's all-powerful allow this to happen? Because we don't fully understand the way that God works. That's the point. We make some assumptions about how we assume that God should work. And then when God doesn't work that way, we think it's because God clearly must not exist. This would be like saying, uh, let's say that you have multiple children in your home and your seven-year-old gets frustrated that she's not allowed to do what your 16-year-old is allowed to do. 
And you say, honey, listen, clearly the reason that you don't get to do all the things that your 16-year-old sister's allowed to do is because she's older and she's wiser. She's more experienced than you. She has more knowledge of the world and the way that the world works than you. And the seven-year-old may not like it, but they understand this idea that there's a limitation to what they can see and experience and what they've learned in their life. And so they're, they're not afforded all of the opportunities and all of the things that the 16-year-old is. But the same dynamic exists between your 16-year-old and yourself. Your 16-year-old only has so much experience. We know more than our children do because we've lived longer. We have more experience. That same relationship between the seven-year-old and the 16-year-old and the 16-year-old and the parent is magnified a thousand, a hundred thousand X between us and God. We assume that we know everything in the way that God should operate in the world. And the truth is, is we don't. This assumption that God can't exist because evil is present, because bad things happen in the world, is an assumption based on how we think the world works and how we think God works. But we're humans and we can't understand the way that God works. And so we struggle with this because we assume we know everything and we don't. And then the last reason that I think that this line of logic and argumentation about how if bad things are present, God can't be present, is because we assume that those are the only two dynamics in the equation. See, the logic follows like this. If God is good, then God would remove all of the bad things. We observe bad things in the world. Therefore, God must not exist because both God and the bad things cannot coexist in the same world. We assume that these are the only two dynamics at play, God's goodness and the bad things of the world. And I think that's incorrect. I think there's a third dynamic that invalidates the entire premise in this entire argument. And that third dynamic is free will. God created us with the ability to choose. God gave us freedom, God gave us free will, and God gave us choice. And with that choice comes the opportunity to choose the bad, to choose sin, to choose things that hurt ourselves or other people. And so it could be the case that God wishes and chooses to allow us to do things that create bad in the world. And God doesn't eliminate the bad because by eliminating the bad, he would violate the contract of free will that he gave us. So when you add a new element to the dynamic, when you add a new piece to the equation, the entire equation changes and we cannot ignore the dynamic of free will. Now, free will to choose wrong is also the dynamic and the freedom to choose what's right and to choose God's grace. And so when we begin to try to put all of these pieces together, these categories of right and wrong that we believe and I believe we derive from God's creation of the world, these characteristics of God and the free will that he gives us, what I believe we come to is a conclusion that God created this world. And through the free will that he gave humans, we made a choice towards sin. And that sin creates and is the cause and the root of all of the bad that we experience. But God is not done being at work in this world. God is constantly creating and recreating this world towards the good intent that he designed this all to be. And we have a role to play in all of this. And so sometimes when we try to explain away the bad things in the world, and sometimes when we try to explain away the presence of God, both arguments fall short. They're too simple. They're too quick. 
the more mature, the more difficult approach is to hold the middle ground. To say, I see that there are bad things in this world. And I believe that there is a God who is still at work in it. And we hold the line for this third way. And this is how we're able to make it through the story of Exodus. Recognizing the way that God is at work in the world amidst all of the pain and suffering that we see and experience. And so as we read Exodus, we have to keep all of this in mind. And as we read Exodus, what we're gonna see is that there are important reminders for us as we go along about why despite God allowing bad things to happen, we can still have hope in this life. So let me read to you just the first couple of verses as the story of Exodus begins. So we are in Exodus verse one, or sorry, chapter one, verse nine. And so now a new king came to power in Egypt who didn't know Joseph. Now what we said last week was Joseph was the last descendant of all of the descendants of Abraham and he ends up with his family in Egypt and this is how Israel finds himself in Egypt. And so right off the bat, what we hear is there is a new ruler, there is a new Pharaoh in Egypt who does not know Joseph. And we'll, we'll recognize why that matters here in just a second. And because this new king who came to power in Egypt doesn't know Joseph, he says to his people, the Israelite people are now larger in number and stronger than we are. That's a problem. Come on, let's be smart and deal with them. Otherwise, they will only grow in number. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and then escape from the land. And as a result, the Egyptians put foremen of forced work gangs over the Israelites to harass them with hard work. They had to build storage cities named Pithom and Ramesses for the Pharaoh. And so here, right off the bat, what we see is we see injustice and oppression and slavery being entered into the lives of this people of Israel. See, the Pharaoh recognizes that they have grown and multiplied as a people. They're now a threat. And anytime we see people who are a threat, we have to do something to mitigate the threat. And so this is what Pharaoh does. He enslaves them, he puts them to hard work, assuming that the bad things that he's doing will lead to the demise of the people of Israel. But that's not what happens. The writer says, but the more they were oppressed, the more they grew and spread. So much so that the Egyptians started to look at the Israelites with disgust and dread. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. And this is, I think, one of the first points that we have to recognize in the story of Exodus and in the story of our lives, because there's clearly suffering and pain in this story, but God is not the cause of this. And some of you need to hear this. Some of you are attributing all of the suffering and the pain that you see in the world to God. You're blaming God for things that God is not responsible for. And so I need you to hear this point. God does not create suffering, but God creates out of suffering. Let me say it again. God doesn't create suffering, but God does and will and can create out of suffering. The more they were oppressed, the more they grew and spread. Just because bad things happen 
doesn't mean that God can't work in the midst of those situations. Just because you've lost your job doesn't mean God has done working in your life. Just because you're struggling in your marriage right now doesn't mean God has given up on you. It doesn't mean that good things and new things can't come out of the bad things that you're experiencing right now. God doesn't create the suffering that you're experiencing, but you can trust that God creates good out of the suffering. And the story continues. It says, so the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites. They made their lives miserable with hard labor, making mortar and bricks, doing field work and forcing them to do all kinds of other cruel work. So because the Pharaoh's attempts to suppress and subjugate and oppress the people of Israel didn't work, and because they grew and multiplied, he just doubled down on the tactic. He said, all right, we'll make it harder for them. We'll make it more difficult for them. And then he comes up with an even more insidious plan. The king of Egypt spoke to two Hebrew midwives. This is in verse 15, named Shipphra and Pua. And he tells them, he says, when you are helping the Hebrew women give birth and you see the baby being born, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, you can let her live. And then it says this, now the two midwives respected God so they didn't obey the Egyptian king's order and instead they let the baby boys live. And so as the Pharaoh recognized that baby boys, Israelite baby boys were continuing to be born, he calls the women back to him. And he says, why are you doing this? Why are you letting the baby boys live? And the two midwives said to Pharaoh, because Hebrew women aren't like Egyptian women, they're much stronger and give birth before any midwives can get to them. And so God treated the midwives well. And the people, the people of Israel, kept on multiplying and became very strong. This is the next thing that I think the very first verses of Exodus teach us. Is that instead of looking for evidence of ways that God isn't real, instead of spending our efforts and energy looking at all of the evidence for all of the pain and suffering, all of the horrible things we see in this life, and using those as justifications as to why we cannot trust in God, that's not what the midwives do. There's a lot of evidence that they could use to try to create an argument to justify the lack of God's existence. But that's not what they do. They don't look for evidence. They look for opportunities. They don't look for evidence, they look for opportunities. They look for opportunities for the way that they can participate in the things that God is doing in the world. Remember, God does not create suffering, but God creates good out of suffering. And these midwives, they look for an opportunity to participate in the work that God is doing in the world. And I think this is the perfect lesson for us right now in this moment. For many of you, it is so easy to stay on your phone, refreshing the webpage, updating the news cycle, checking on the body count, getting more and more concerned about the economy or about your industry or about your job. To spend all of this time gathering evidence for why the world has never been in a worse place. To gather all of this evidence for why you have been abandoned or forgotten by God. But we have a different chance ahead of us. We have an opportunity to instead to look for ways that we can partner, that we can participate in the work that God is doing in the world right now. Yes, there is suffering all around us. Yes, bad things are going on. Yes, this is hard and it is difficult and this would not be what we would choose. But it doesn't mean that we throw our hands in the air and we give up. 
No, this is the time when we as people of faith double down and say, all right, God, we're on board. Show us how we can help. Show us how we can make a difference in the lives of people who need it. Show us where you are at work in the world. Show us where you are creating good out of suffering, God. And we'll be on board. We'll sign up. We'll jump in. We want to help, God. We want to look for the opportunities for the way that we can participate. Many of you, you did this in an amazing way over the last couple of weeks as we raised over $60,000 to help distribute meals to families in need. There's going to be more opportunities for you to come and distribute those meals. There will be ways for you to serve people in the upcoming weeks, but you have to continue to look for the opportunities. Don't spend your time looking for evidence, but look for the opportunities. The story continues. And because the midwives respected God, God blessed them and gave them households of their own. God recognized that their efforts were not in vain. They weren't wasted. They weren't misguided. And then at the end of the story, at least for now, Pharaoh gives an order to all his people. The tactics of putting them into slavery to making life hard and miserable and cruel for them didn't work. This attempt to leverage the midwives to kill the baby boys, that didn't work. So he leans towards even greater evil, even greater insidiousness. Pharaoh gives an order to all his people. Throw every baby boy, throw every baby boy born to the Hebrews into the Nile River. This is the command that he gives. Take all of the boys, all of the infants, and throw them into the river. And that's where chapter one ends, on that note, on that tone. And here's the last point for us. Because if we just stop the story there, we would say, God, how could you allow this to happen? All of these baby boys are being killed. God, where are you? Why aren't you working? And what we recognize or what we fail to recognize and what we must remember as we move forward in this story and we move forward in our own story and in the days that come, is that the worst thing is never the last thing. The worst thing is never the last thing. This is the worst thing that we have read in the story of Exodus, all of the baby boys being thrown into the river and drowned and killed. But this is not how the story ends. This is just chapter one. So no matter what you're experiencing in your world right now, no matter what you see in the world right now, the worst things are never the last things. We are only a couple of weeks past Easter. Easter is the perfect example of this truth. On Friday, when Jesus was crucified and killed, it felt like the worst thing. And then on Saturday, when all of his followers were moping around and wandering around about what to do next, the story wasn't over. Because on Sunday morning, that tomb was empty. Jesus was resurrected. And they realized that the worst things that they experienced were not the last things that they were going to experience, that there was still hope in the world and there was still hope for them. Friends, that's where we are today. These things that we are experiencing are bad. They're painful. They're difficult to navigate. But what we can take away is the hope that the worst thing is never the last thing. So why does God allow bad things to happen? I don't know if that's the right question. Sometimes these why questions, one, are framed incorrectly like we've already seen. But two, they require answers that we'll never get in this life. 
And so I think there are better questions that we can ask instead of why did God. What we can ask is, where is God working in the world today? Where is God creating good out of suffering? Other questions that we can ask is how? How can we participate in the work that God is doing in the world? How can we participate in the good that God is creating? Or when? When will we see a new day? When will we have a clearer vision of life as God intends it to be? When can we finally see life as God promised us? We know that the worst things are never the last things. Why questions are normal to ask, but we never get an answer. And so I hope that as we journey through the story of Exodus, and as you continue to walk day in and day out through the story that you're experiencing right now, you will trust that God is still at work in the world, that God is still at work in your world. And there is an opportunity for you to participate in that work and that better days are ahead. Better days are ahead. Friends, let me pray for our time together this morning. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for the reminder of the truth that you are still active and present in this world. For the reminder that there is a way that you are continuing to work even in the midst of the suffering, even in the midst of all of the hard and the bad that we experience, God. God, thank you for the reminder that there is a way for us to participate in that work as well. And thank you for the hope. Thank you for the hope that we find in the example of your son that worse things are never the last thing. God, we love you. Help us to be a people who are more faithful, more committed, and more devoted to the work that you're doing. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you live in the Dallas area, we would love for you to visit us. For directions, service times, and more info, visit us at grove.org.